You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. But it requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. Joe Biden warns Israel about the way forward. We'll examine Washington's role in the conflict with Hamas. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Macron has been in Tel Aviv. I want to thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, not just for your time, but because I'm lucid about the fact that this fight against terrorism is obviously a matter of existence for Israel. France's president has proposed that Israel join the anti-terror coalition to fight Hamas. We'll get the details. There's a new political party in Germany, and both left and right are worried about their share of the vote. We'll find out more. Then... The Arctic is warming four times faster than the global average. So the changes that are happening here are extreme. We'll hear from the head of the WWF Arctic program. We'll have a roundup of business news. And finally, what happened when Marx met Confucius? We'll take a look at a bizarre Chinese propaganda series. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. World leaders are seeking to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from spreading across a region key to global energy supplies. Chinese President Xi Jinping says that China is willing to cooperate with the United States as both sides manage their differences and work together to respond to global challenges. And the Kremlin has denied a report that President Vladimir Putin is ill and laughed off persistent rumours that he uses body doubles to cover for him in public appearances. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, we start the show by examining Washington's role in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Biden was very quick off the mark to visit Israel and has affirmed his wholehearted support for the country. However, he's also warned that Israel should not repeat the mistakes that the US made after 9-11, a concern echoed by former President Barack Obama. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, who's co-director of University College London's Centre on US Politics. Julie, many thanks for coming back on the show. Um, Several US officials have flagged that Washington worried that Israel has not properly defined its military objectives and that the knee-jerk reaction to the October the 7th attacks could grow into a regional conflagration unless it's carefully managed. What do we know about these concerns? Hi, Georgina. So there's a couple of different layers to this. One is we've obviously heard from Israel a need and a desire to oust Hamas. But what American officials are trying to push Israel on is what would, even if that's able uh, to be done, what would an end game look like if Hamas was ousted from Gaza? What is the plan for Gaza? What is the strategic end here? As many remember, the U.S. went in very quickly to Afghanistan and Iraq and themselves had not identified what the next day, so to speak, would look 
look like? So there's a lot of conversation about that. Is uh, you know Israel prepared to reoccupy Gaza? Is there going to be a power vacuum? Will they install the PA? So all of those questions are circling. There's also the questions of how the operation itself will play out. Um, urban warfare is extremely difficult. It usually incurs massive both civilian and military casualties. And there's a question of how Israel will undertake this and also how it will reverberate throughout the region. We've already seen extreme humanitarian suffering. Um, it's very difficult to um, to imagine that this isn't going to stay confined to Gaza and many concern that this will only further inflame conflict and maybe even backfire in Israel in the long run. Mm, because it does look like the US officials are laying out a binary choice, as you say, either do it through surgical airstrikes, special operations troops, as happened in Mosul, or you go into Gaza with tanks and infantry, a little like what happened in Fallujah in 2004. But, but it, either will result in heavy losses. Are those the only options on the table? And how involved would Washington be in either scenario? Yeah, so I would say the the Mosul-Fallujah comparison is certainly an apt one right now that military officials from both the U.S. and Israel are considering. They are definitely not the only options. Gaza is a different kind of operation than those operations would have been. Um, I think Israel will be using air and sea as well as ground and whatever um, operation takes place. Um, But you're right that the U.S. is definitely pushing Israel on these questions. They have been very uh, clear in their statements that they are not making decisions for Israel. This is still Israel's call. But with the amount of diplomatic, political and military support that Washington is giving Israel, you can assume that they're really trying to use that as leverage to uh, encourage Israel's decision making on these questions. Mm. Now, unusually, the former US President Barack Obama's also made a rare statement warning that any Israeli military strategy that ignores the human cost of the war could ultimately backfire. Uh, what does he mean? And does Obama speaking out work to the the Biden administration's advantage. Yeah, so um, Obama posted these comments yesterday. And again, this idea of backfire is one that the Biden administration has certainly uh, suggested. And I think uh, Obama was able to kind of come out and and say it a bit more clearly. And again, it's this idea that if this operation continues um, with images that we've already seen of mass civilian casualties, of very high humanitarian suffering, will that only, one, galvanize a Hamas 2.0 or a, you know, equivalent or, or even more extreme kind of group to emerge in the region or elsewhere in Palestine? Or will it simply um, encourage other actors in the region, Hezbollah, Syria, Iran, to get involved? So this idea that if this operation goes ahead without concern for civilians, without concern for humanitarian suffering, will that just further inflame it and further, um, you know, further create uh, security concerns as well as moral and, and ethical concerns for Israel? So I do think Obama saying this has um, been another important voice. It's um, a little bit controversial when a former president weighs in, um, but Obama and Biden were and remain very close. And I do think many watch his words still um, very closely. Mm. We're talking about how you get to the end game. But but uh, as you say, the, the, the key question is, what happens afterwards? And is there any kind of plan for that? Yeah, so there is certainly a lot of discussion about this right now. Um, I would say that most in Israel do not want to reoccupy Gaza. But again, with a military ground operation, that um, is something that is certainly being known may just de facto happen. Um, There are considerations of trying to have a transition government that would then um, lend itself to having the Palestinian Authority, which currently um, controls the West Bank or uh, the Palestinian areas in the West Bank, to be able to have a foot 
foothold in Gaza. Palestinian Authority is very weak. They don't have a lot of legitimacy. They're seen as very corrupt. So that's also challenging. And then there's been other uh, ideas that have been floated as well, a um, and transitional Arab force, UN peacekeepers. So everything right now is on the table. But I think what everyone knows is you don't want a power vacuum in Gaza, especially when it's probably going to be, um, again, an extremely dire humanitarian situation with most infrastructure wiped out as well. So there's there's not a lot of good options for how this might look. Uh, moving slightly afield, the White House says Iran is in some cases actively facilitating rocket and drone attacks on Iranian by Iranian-backed proxy groups uh, on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria. So President Biden directed the Department of Defense to brace for more and respond appropriately. What form might that response take? Yeah, so the U.S. still has um, a small number of troops in both Iraq and Syria, about 2,500 in Iraq, um, a little bit less than that in Syria, mainly to um, to combat ISIS and to train and, and help uh, Iraqi forces there. So they have already been the target of Iranian um, proxy groups in the past, and this is expected probably to increase. Um, my sense is that their response will be proportionate to what's uh, what they've done before, which is usually to have very surgical targets targeted strikes on um, usually what are what those proxy groups operators. And these are, do not usually uh, blow up into a wider war. That's a, very much a key aim of Washington. But again, everything is a bit on the edge of a knife right now with how much this might escalate and the kinds of responses that might be needed. Because the Iranian foreign minister is trying to make it very clear that Iran does not control regional resistance groups. How worried is Iran? Uh, yeah, so Iran has been putting out different kinds of statements this week. Um, they have, in some ways, distanced themselves, but have also suggested that there may be a need to escalate the conflict. So I, my sense is that Iran is, like Israel, being somewhat cautious in trying to have this spread to a regional war. I think there are many considerations for, for all states that that could be very dangerous and ultimately um, costly. Um, Iran's main arm is Hezbollah on the uh, the northern front of Israel and southern Lebanon. I think the biggest question for Iran is if they will more actively, um, if they will activate, uh, if they will activate Hezbollah more more strongly there. Now we know that the U.S. has sent naval power to the Middle East in the past two weeks, including two aircraft carriers, some other warships, and about two thousand Marines. Are we looking at a boots on the ground scenario? So the U.S. has been very clear that that is not what they are aiming for. Most of those movements have been for a deterrence um, uh, intention, really, again, to deter Hezbollah, Iran and Syria from escalating the conflict into a regional war. That's how Washington is seeing it. Uh, boots on the ground is not something they're planning for unless the situation changed drastically and there was a need to do that. But I think after Iraq and Afghanistan, that's the last thing the Biden administration wants. Julie, thank you very much indeed. That was Julie Norman of University College London, and we'll have more uh, about the House Speaker race, uh, which of course influences uh, America's reaction here in terms of funding on the briefing at noon London time. This is The Globalist. It's 9-11 in Tel Aviv, 7-11 here in London. 30 French citizens were killed in the Hamas attack on Israel and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is in Tel Aviv on the second of a two-day visit. Speaking at a press conference with his Israeli counterpart, Benjamin Netanyahu, Macron proposed that an international coalition fighting against Islamic State in Iraq and Syria be widened to include the fight against the Palestinian militant group Hamas in Gaza. Well, joining me now from Paris, 
is Florence Biedemann, who's a political analyst and former AFP news editor. Florence, uh, good to speak to you again. How realistic is Macron's proposal? And I wonder if he gave any details, particularly how Israel, who's not a member of the US-led coalition, could be involved. Well, so far, the idea is a bit vague, you know, because he didn't give any details. Uh, but the Elysee Palace uh, explained afterwards that um, uh, the idea was not to put boots on the ground, rather uh, to get inspiration from uh, uh, the anti-ISIS coalition, like sharing intelligence or, you know, trying to to fight against uh, the funding of uh, of a terrorist organizations. So uh, this is more kind of a, a, a project that is inspired by by this other coalition. Uh, as you said, like there are so many members in it, like the Arab League, uh, some 80 countries. So uh, it remains to be seen whether they would be ready to extend the fight to Hamas because uh, Arabic countries have a different view on, on uh, what Hamas is uh, than uh, than uh, certainly uh, Macron has. So it's it's kind of, you know, but you can also see it as uh, a fear or uh, that uh, the conflicts really widens. Uh, yeah, we mentioned the, the role of Iran, for example, of Hezbollah is doing. So the, the idea may be that there is kind of an international uh, coalition to try to, to limit and to, to control the situation. Mm. What does Macron hope to achieve from this trip to Israel? Well, he certainly uh, at least... Uh, uh, is back in, in the game, if I may say, uh, with the, this uh, uh, new idea he suggested. Uh, he wanted also to, to kind of uh, strike a balance uh, between Israeli and Palestinian. You know, France has, uh, let's say, traditionally uh, a balanced policy on, uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, it used to be even like uh, more pro-Arab, like during a, a Gaullist presidency. Uh, like, for example, Jacques Chirac had a more active uh, pro-Arab policy. So uh, it's not the case with Macron, but let's say uh, he's trying, you know, to to again play a role. He insisted on the fact that uh, the uh, political process, let's say peace process, should be relaunched uh, between Israeli and Palestinians. So uh, again, he's trying to, to, to exist and to have a diplomatic role in, in the Middle East. Mm. Now, he's one of a long line of world leaders to turn up in Tel Aviv two weeks after the, the current conflagration began. He's come under fire from certain quarters for being too slow to make the trip. Is that a big point of contention in France? No, it's not, because there were two other visits, you know, like the visit of uh, the president of the National Assembly, the visit of the foreign minister. So uh, what he said, and which you, you, you can uh, accept as a good reason, is that he didn't want to rush... Uh, uh, and have nothing to suggest, or he said he wanted to be useful. Okay, so you can see it in, in this new idea of uh, anti-Hamas coalition. It's uh, uh, it didn't, you know, limit his role just to 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 ask for the freeing of hostages. Uh, again, he's trying to impulse something. I mean, whether it will have any effect, you know, uh, really remains to be seen. And is it politically risky? Do you think for Macron to be seen too closely allied to the US? in the UK? Well, I mean, he's certainly closer to the US and UK position than uh, his Gullis predecessor were. Uh, and um, he has to take into consideration that in France there is a fine balance. You know, France uh, hosts uh, one of the biggest Jewish community uh, and also very, very important 
community of uh, uh, Arabic origin from Maghreb countries, and there were already a ban. He first issued a ban, the government issued a ban against uh, pro-Palestinian demonstration before it was rescinded in court. So, you know, he has to, to also to think of uh, interior, uh, uh, internal considerations uh, to, to really uh, make a balance between, uh, between the two camps. Mm. Uh, and, and finally, how are people in France reacting to this conflict? Uh, have there been marches and protests as we've seen in other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, France is, I think it's uh, the, the topic is as, uh, you know, present, as uh, important as in many other countries. First, because of this important Jewish community. Second, uh, because of this important uh, um, community of Arabic uh, uh, descent. And uh, there was demonstration uh, supporting Israel. Uh, there was first this ban on, on um, demonstration to, to support Palestinians, uh, but eventually there was a big march in Paris, which was uh, pretty peaceful. So you, you can see that the, the topic is really very present and, uh, and uh, very contentious in France too. Florence, thank you very much indeed. That's Florence Biederman there. Now, still to come on the programme... The sound of ancient Chinese artefacts coming to life to perform a rap. We'll examine the bizarre Chinese TV series when Marx met Confucius. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Rhodes, Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, We are going to start with the seemingly never-ending search for a speaker. What's happened overnight? Well, um, the third candidate who the Republicans put up, um, Tom Emmer, um, he lasted a grand total of uh, five hours um, as as a candidate before he um, stepped away after... Um, the the MAGA wing of the Republican Party um, came, came out against him. It was quite ironic because Donald Trump had said that he was not going to get involved in the nomination for the speaker, but he put on his Truth uh, Social site a a post where he said, you know, I have many wonderful friends wanting to be Speaker of the House, and Tom Emmer is not one of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is he backing though? 
Well, he's well. He hasn't backed anyone, but um, overnight they they have put forth a fourth candidate. Now it was uh, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. So we'll see how far he, he, you know he makes it, and they can get on after they've already you know got rid of Steve Scalise and, and Jim Jordan. Um, you remember back in January, it took fifteen ballots to get. Um, Kevin McCarthy in as speaker, and then he only lasted nine months. But the, I mean, this is a the uh, Congress has not been in sitting since the the October the third when they got rid of McCarthy. So this is a, you know um, we're in the third week now without this, and there's a great many things going on in the world at the moment, as everyone knows. And and uh, one of the things, of course, with the Israel conflict and Biden wanting to, um, you know, to pass um, money for aid to send to Israel. And of course, that can't happen because there is no speaker in Congress. I mean, some of the views espoused by some of these candidates are extraordinary. Johnson, an evangelical Christian, sponsored legislation that would effectively bar the discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity at any institution serving children. I, I mean, there are lots of really quite extreme views here. Um, there are um, quite extreme views, but then some uh, many members of the um, far right of the Republican Party um, agree, agree to these views. So maybe by finding someone who um, is more aligned with that, that they, um, the mega wing whites um, support them in their bid to become speaker and then you know, business can resume in the Hill. I mean, the New York Times is saying that some hard-right Republicans consider themselves a distinct political party. At what point does that actually become, you know, solid? Well, I mean, that's a very good question, Georgina. I, 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 because there are many Republicans who have who have complained about some of the antics of the, the MAGA wing and of what they, you know, how they're dragging things out. Some of the people that are trying to impeach Biden at the moment, um, you know, they just say this is a, you know, Farrago is wasting time. And they've got, um, they've only just managed to pass a spending bill to keep um, the government running. And that runs out on, I believe, November the 12th. So if they're not in there to hammer out some serious business soon, I mean, this is all rather a lot of a circus, isn't it? Yeah. And a very macho one. Are there any women contenders? Um, it, it doesn't appear so at the moment, but although there's some very strong women in the um, MAGA wing of the party with your, um, um, you know, uh, so I think that, I don't know if they can um, pull one out of somewhere. <laughs> well, I don't in, know if Marjorie Taylor Greene would be interested in the role. Yeah, uh, It's opposite, obviously, in Iceland, where, of course, the prime minister is a woman uh, and has also led the strike, the uh, 100,000 women uh, striking. Tell us more about this. Yes, there are 100,000 women apparently took to the streets of of Iceland yesterday, um, which uh, the Guardian said was about a th you know nearly a third of the population, and to um, strike, they said they're not going to cook or clean um, or feed uh, their men or their children, and in uh, in all in the bid for you know f female equality. Um, Iceland, there have been some. It's interesting. There are some some questions about why this has come from Iceland, which is seen as a well, as as Al Jazeera put it, a feminist paradise, because it is um, it is the best country in the world for gender equality, with uh, the World Economic Forum giving it a score of ninety one point two percent. But um, their prime minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir, has obviously uh, taken a, a real leadership role here, and which has captured the imagination of women not just in Iceland but around the world. Mm, I mean, and it's fantastic and she's really talking about how 
how she is trying to promote this to the rest of the world, uh, uh, equality is still far from being achieved. Hence this reminder. And it really, it would seem almost like a PR stunt to, to, to just remind the globe that actually Iceland may be doing pretty well, but people really need to catch up. Well, 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 certainly, and 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 one of the even one of the uh, more sad um, facts that came out of the statistics is that forty percent of women in Iceland are uh, victims of gender-based or sexual violence. So, I mean, there are still you know issues to be addressed. Mm. Uh, let's move on. We are now looking at a piece here about. MPs pension funds. <laughs> well, I, this might seem, I mean, as anyone who knows me is probably rolling their eyes right now, but this is a, uh, a bit of a pet um, um, love of mine because as, as a pension trustee themselves, but it's it's interesting because it, it says MPs, this is with the FT, and, um, and it says that MPs pension funds shun UK equities. And it's, this is quite um, ironic because just a couple of months ago at, at the Mansion House speech, the Chancellor, um, Jeremy Hunt, said that British um, pensions, especially the larger funds, need to allocate a minimum of 5% to... Um, invest in private equities to kind of spur growth in Britain. They must invest in Britain. But when it comes to their own investments, the parliamentary um, pension scheme invests just 1.7% of its funds in UK equities or stocks and shares and for a total of 2.8% of its overall shareholding. So they're not really kind of speaking with their own money. Absolutely not. And I mean, does it explain why? Well, um, well, this is the is uh, when you are a pension trustee, you do have a fiduciary duty to find you know the best retirement outcomes for your members. And and as any investor would know, all the much of the growth in the world, especially in the past you know ten twelve years, has been in technology shares in the United States. So there are many pension funds, and and I would say probably not just. The, the MPs ones are, you know, invest in these things that are growing. And the problem with the the FTSE um, 100 especially, as many critics have said, it, it is a very, you know, old, some people have described it as a 19th century stock market, invest in things like oil and gas and mining and other commodities and gambling, which people don't like. Um, also it has a lot of arms manufacturers that people don't like. So they're investing in things that they do like, like your Apples and Googles, which have seen tremendous growth. And obviously, if you're looking for these kinds of things, then that all these things are listed in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, let's go to France. Uh, and this is a big row about what restaurants can serve and how they must label it. Well, this this is the most depressing story of the day, I must say, Georgina. <laughs> because would you would can you take a guess at how many restaurants cook all their food from scratch in France, the home of gastronomy? I mean, I can see the figure, and it is shocking. I mean, only four percent serve food entirely cooked from scratch, according to Alain Fontaine, <laughs> who is the president of the Association of Master Restaurateurs. Um, I, I mean, you you can't imagine it, can you? Because every, every people, especially you know, from Britain, we go to France, and that's the thing: is the food, and is is you know, you find your little bistro, and that they would make something in the back of, and and it's homemade. And apparently, the vast majority of restaurants buy industrially produced ready meals or frozen food from specialist supermarkets, where the customers that go to these supermarkets must show proof that they work in the catering trade. So you're just getting heat and eat stuff. 
Which is extraordinary. But the government has tried to stop this before. Could they introduce a homemade label? They did introduce a homemade label, but obviously it hasn't really caught on. So they're kind of moving from, you know, uh, carrot to stick. And so they will compel by law um, restaurants to label dishes not cooked from scratch in their own kitchen um, before 2025, according to their um, trade minister, Olivia Gregoire. Um, so, it, it, I mean, this might get in earlier by the time for the Olympics, but we don't know. But this has been hailed, obviously, by, you know, you know, restaurants that actually do cook as a, you know, as a, as a victory for consumers and for artisans of taste, which I imagine the listeners of Monocle Radio certainly are. <laughs> and I just love there's a couple of quotes from, from very well-known chefs just saying that London is now the gastronomic capital of the world. Well, yes. I mean, there is. I think that is the... I, I do get complaints from my partner sometimes that all the food in France is the same everywhere you go. And of course, in Britain, you, in London especially, you can get such food from and various cuisines from around the world. So we're very lucky to be here. Absolutely. Paul Rhodes, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. World leaders are seeking to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from spreading across a region key to global energy supplies. US President Joe Biden and Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman spoke by phone yesterday and agreed on broader diplomacy to maintain stability across the region and prevent the conflict from expanding, the White House said. Chinese President Xi Jinping said on Wednesday that China is willing to cooperate with the United States as both sides manage their differences and work together to respond to global challenges. Xi's call for more stable bilateral ties, which he says should be built on the principles of mutual respect, peaceful coexistence and win-win cooperation, comes before a key visit by Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Washington later this week. And the Kremlin has denied a report that President Vladimir Putin is ill and laughed off persistent rumours that he uses body doubles to cover for him in public appearances. Everything is fine with him. This is absolutely another fake, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said when asked about an unsourced report that the president had suffered a serious health episode. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, as security issues take over the Arctic agenda, many are concerned this will overshadow the climate crisis in the region. The Arctic, along with polar bears, is widely seen as the poster child for climate change, and scientists have long warned that the polar region is the fastest warming place on Earth. This was a key theme at this year's Arctic Circle Assembly, which took place over the weekend in Reykjavik. Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with one of the attendees, Vicky Walgren, director of the World Wildlife Fund's Global Arctic Programme. Andrew began by asking why Arctic conferences are so important. At this time, I would say, um, when in the Arctic we have been affected by first COVID and the inabilities to meet each other because of that, followed almost immediately after that by the war in Ukraine, mm. during which time the Arctic Council came to a pause. And once again, all of the normal meetings that you would have and chances to meet with others, uh, those ones were all paused as well. Gatherings like this become really important, uh, regardless of whether we're talking about the senior Arctic officials, whether we're talking about uh, members of different uh, indigenous peoples from around the Arctic, um, other organizations, scientists, researchers, journalists, 
everybody. This is, you know, this is one of the great opportunities for us to be able to do that. The Arctic has become the sort of the, the poster region for environmental protections. Uh, when people think about climate change, they do think about this part of the world for obvious enough reasons. But from the point of view of the WWF, do you find that the, the governments of this part of the world are perhaps more receptive to those concerns than others? I would say this. Yes, the Arctic is the unwanted poster child for climate <laughs> change. Um, and for obvious reasons, right? I mean, the Arctic is warming four times faster than the global average. Uh, so the changes that are happening here are extreme. Um, at the same time, the Arctic is a vast, vast area. There are about four million people who mm -hmm. live here. So in a sense, the number of witnesses of what is happening here are substantially less than in many other parts of the world. If we're thinking in South Asia, where there's extreme weather events happening there, mm. and you see the typhoons and the floodings, the impacts in terms of people are, of course, greater. So I think that they get a lot of attention globally in media, etc., because you see that in terms of the impacts on the numbers of people. In terms of the impacts on nature, though, here in the Arctic, those are much more extreme. So in terms of the governments here in the, the Arctic countries, they do see the changes that are happening here in the Arctic. They do care about their citizens who are living in the Arctic region. But for all of the Arctic countries, their Arctic region is also a rather small proportion of their entire population mm. as well. Sometimes you kind of get the feeling that the Arctic is sort of their backyard. They don't think about it maybe as much. And as global media also often sees where the larger numbers of people are living, and that gets more attention, then there is that risk that the people living in Washington and Ottawa and Stockholm are, are also, you know, obviously affected by global media and are seeing what's being reported on. But, but do you and your organization get concerned as well that governments are getting more excited about the potential, if you like, of uh, climate change than they are concerned about ameliorating it when they, they start thinking about the resources that might become available and the shipping routes that might open up. But do you get worried that there's maybe an amount of hubristic thinking along the lines of, we can kind of have it all, we don't really have to make a choice? On bad days, yes. <laughs> um, one, one can sort of feel that way. On good days and on most days then, I like to think that no, they don't think that. I think that they do see that there are opportunities, but these need to be balanced, of course. It needs to be done within what nature can tolerate. Um, and the risk is, of course, that that greedy side and the big pockets might um, overshadow um, the more logical sides of the brain. Uh, I did want to ask just finally, uh, I was looking earlier at the uh, the ARCnet map, A-R-C-N-E-T, uh, which is a, a, a WWF thing. Um, I, I was wondering basically if you could just introduce it because it is, it is readily accessible to anybody with a phone or a laptop um, and explain, well, what impact do you hope that it will have? So ARCnet was an initiative that we took a number of years ago. The Arctic is obviously one giant system. Mm. And we saw countries taking different initiatives, thinking within their own jurisdictions, of course, as one does, about what needs to be done, what needs to be protected, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all one interconnected system. And so we felt that we needed to take that view from above, looking down at the globe and seeing, you know, but how are all these parts fitting together? If we look at the 
Arctic Ocean as a whole, that Arctic Ocean that is being changed rapidly and dramatically from climate change, what is needed to conserve the functioning of that system? So looking at all of the necessary conservation values within that entire Arctic Ocean and looking at it as one big system, what would need to be protected in order to conserve the functioning of the Arctic Ocean as a whole. So that's what we did. And we gathered scientists from around the Arctic, uh, working with global databases and really putting this together and pushing them to say, you know, all right, guys, what's the minimum? What do we need to have? And kind of serendipitously, when looking at that, and really from the science, what we saw was, you know, looking at all those parts, which ones need to be protected, it came out to about 30%. I say that serendipitously because that came, our ARCnet was designed before the global biodiversity framework was adopted. Which arrived at roughly that number. Which says that globally, <laughs> we need to be protecting 30% <laughs> of the globe. So, you, you know, interesting, at least here in the Arctic, it is that. And so ARCnet is, like you're saying, it's a completely open, transparent database. And it's a starting point. Mm. It's a suggestion, a blueprint of what can be protected. It's a live database. So the idea is people are able to go in there and look at that as new research comes in, because as we know, the Arctic is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. We can update and revise that as people start protecting things. They can input that so that everybody is always able to see what is happening. That was Vicky Walgren, director of the World Wildlife Fund's Global Arctic Programme, speaking to Andrew Muller at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It is 8.37 in Berlin, 7.37 here in London. A new political party has been formed in Germany with plans to launch officially in January. It's a big shake-up of the political landscape which could impact on boats votes for both the left and the right. Well, Sarah Wagenknecht is a seasoned populist. She's broken away from the struggling left to launch a group that claims to be left-wing conservative. Polls suggest the party could attract up to a quarter of votes across the country, perhaps even a third in the eastern states. Well, I'm joined now by Annette Dittert, who is the senior correspondent for the German broadcaster ARD. Uh, Annette, many thanks for coming on the show. This isn't a surprise. There have been rumours circulating about Wagenknecht's plans for a while. Indeed, she does have form on this. She launched a short-lived breakaway group once before. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Yes, I can. Good morning. Um, She is a classic contrarian, uh, if you like, a classic populist. And indeed, she has tried to launch something like a party before, which wasn't exactly officially a party. She failed with that. And now she said she learned from it and is launching a proper party, um, the Sarah Wagenknecht Bündnis. So it has her name uh, sort of, uh, she's very much the center of this whole thing. And when she presented herself on Monday um, uh, during a press conference where she announced the launch of her new party, she tried to play very much like uh, pretend or present herself as the voice of reason. And that's how the party is called as well the the kind of voice for reason and justice and fairness, which is slightly misleading because she is clearly a populist and um, thus she might eat into the votes of the rising far right in Germany, the AFD, 
but also into the votes of the centrist party, especially the conservative centrists. So that might shake up uh, the German landscape, political landscape quite a lot, although I don't think that she will get that much of, of the votes. Um, currently um, in polls, it looks more like 12, 15%, but you never know. It's early days. Mm. So do we know exactly what her policies are? That's actually really hard to say, especially after she launched herself almost like a conservative, conservative centrist uh, politic, politician, which she isn't. So what she's trying to do at the moment, she's trying to present herself as a centrist, calm voice who wants Germany to go back to its old industrial glory, um, pretends that it's possible to go back to those uh, industrial success stories of Germany of the 80s and 90s, um, while mostly attacking the Greens, which, which means she tries to pretend that it's easy to go back to where we were, which sort of, um, yeah, will will sound sound well for a lot of disgruntled voters here in Germany who are not happy with the performance of the current coalition. So she's basically trying to appeal to or exploit the anxieties of Germany uh, Germans about a looming recession while um, sounding like the voice of reason. But, but in reality, if you look, for example, or listen to her when she has her rallies or when or to, uh, tune in to her weekly YouTube show where she has up to 1.5 to 2 million um, followers, um, she sounds entirely different. I mean, she is um, someone who's quite extreme politically and has always been. She joined the Communist Party in 89 when it was at the height of its unpopularity. Um, she has defended Stalin. She has. Um, she's now having a... a voicing a clear pro-Putin stance. She wants to go back to using the pipeline Nord Stream 2. She wants to use um, Russian gas again. This would make everything cheaper. Um, she's anti-migrants. Um, and she has been a big, big voice for the anti-vaccine conspiracy theories um, two years ago. So, so in reality, if you listen to her, um, where she is amongst her own people, um, she's way more extreme than she has tried to present herself now. Mm. I wonder what this means for, for the left, for the left party, which only just managed to stay in Parliament in the 2021 national election. We know that there have been long-running tensions within the party. This has deepened. Will this defection exacerbate that? Yes, certainly. I think that the left party will probably be the first victim of this new party of Sarah Wagenknecht's party. And that's what she also more or less wants. Uh, there were long-standing tensions between her and, and, and the other politicians and, and uh, people in the inside the left party because they are traditionally very pro-migrant. They want to um, do more about climate change, things she doesn't want to do. They're here she's very much more on the far right, um, having the Greens as her main enemy. So I think the first victim will be the left party who just so managed to get into the Bundestag. Um, but it will be very interesting to see whether she will get votes mostly from the AFD, from the far right, or whether her new party will also eat into the centrist voters. Because there, at the moment, there is this very optimistic idea here in Germany that she might just sort of split the vote for the AFD and thus sort of strengthen the center. I do not think so. I think she will rather normalize this kind of populism, uh, this kind of 
them and us anti-establishment thinking, and that might even strengthen the far right in the end, and and even further weaken the centrist parties. I mean, you have a government here at the moment, a coalition that is deeply unpopular for all kinds of reasons. And if she manages to get more votes from the center and not weaken the AFD, this might be quite a dangerous addition to the German political landscape if you believe in liberal democracy. Mm. And, and does she have the political backing that she needs? How many lawmakers have followed her? So far, it's it's early days. I mean, so far, she's been presenting herself with only a few uh, people, mostly from the old left party, p- party people who are still members of the left party. So this is a slow move now. We will see over the next month how many people, maybe even popular politicians from other parties might join her. Um, officially, the party will join only in January. So we'll have to wait and see. So far, it's mostly about her, which is quite clever because she's one of the most popular or let's say most well-known politicians uh, on on the left uh, so far. And um, yeah, it it might be a good move for her to put herself right in the center of this. Whether at the end of the day in January she will have enough people to really launch this party in a successful way, we'll see. Mm. I wonder if she'll be able to build the party infrastructure to compete against all 116 states in time for the European parliamentary elections, which happen, I think, next June. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the idea, to use the European elections next summer as a test run. The real aim is to get into the Bundestag and, and the, the next German elections will be in 25. So um, that's the big question, whether she will be able to build up that infrastructure in time. She hasn't been very good at doing these things in the past with her movement she tried, where she tried already to rally people around her and, and leave the left party a few years ago. This failed because she is not the best organization, not the best person to organize uh, infrastructure. She's not interested in that. She makes that clear. She wants just to be the front and the center, the shining center of this party. So the big question will be whether she'll find enough, uh, whether she can gather enough people around her to launch an infrastructure that will be. Uh, yeah, able to compete with the remaining, uh, with the existing German, other German parties. That's quite a complicated thing to do in Germany. So that will be technically an interesting question for the next month. Annette, many thanks. That was journalist Annette Dittert. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time to talk business now with Rachel Papazzoni, national business reporter and presenter at ABC News. She joins me now from Perth. Hello to you, Rachel. Hi, Georgina. Great to be with you. Uh, so, uh, 
The global economic downturn, it's clearly continuing. We see that the world's largest sovereign wealth fund has just posted a big loss. What's going on with Norway? It makes makes you wonder how the rest of us are sort of coping, doesn't it? Um, So this is um, Norway's government pension fund global. Uh, It's worth 1.4 trillion US dollars. Now, it's just um, let us all know uh, that it uh, saw that value fall 2.1% 2.1% during the third quarter, a loss of 374 billion Norwegian kroners. That's about 34 billion US dollars. Uh, now, the fund also reported a quarterly loss a, a year ago. Um, so I guess it's not immune to losses. But but what we're seeing with this is, I guess, what we're, many of us are feeling around the world, um, that various parts of our lives are being impacted by this global economic downturn. And when you look at sort of the sectors or or the areas of the fund that that saw those losses, um, uh, its largest asset class, which is equities, saw a decline of 2.1%. Its investment in real estate uh, was down 3.3%. And interestingly, renewable energy infrastructure investments were also down uh, 2.4%. So I think it really points to the fact that the interest rate hikes that have been happening for um, you know close to two years in some parts now uh, by central banks around the world are really impacting businesses' activity, their ability to, to borrow, their, their desire to spend more money, uh, and that's really having a flow-on effect even for this this fund that's the, you know created in the 90s as, as a, I guess, a way to, to um, use uh, some of Norway's uh, oil and gas sector um, taxes and revenue and really invest globally. 70 countries or over 9,000 companies around the world that it invests in. Uh, so clearly that impact is happening um, for everyone, including the biggest uh, investment fund in the world. Yeah. Let's look to your country now. And Australia's four-month run with no interest rate hikes could be about to end. Yeah, this really carries on with this theme, Georgina. Uh, we had our inflation data out today for uh, the September quarter, and uh, it showed that inflation was at 1.2% for the quarter, taking in, in annual inflation to 5.4%. Now, those numbers are stronger than um, the market was expecting, that our central bank was expecting. They are uh, showing a decline on the previous quarter. That was an annual inflation rate of, of 6%. So we are seeing the number come down, but not as fast as, as anyone had really hoped and still well above our 2 to 3% target range. Uh, and so we saw some pretty big market responses. Uh, the Australian dollar jumped uh, to a new high of 63.89 US cents. Our share market took a huge dive uh, just after 11.30 this morning when the numbers came out, though the market has just closed in the last hour and a half or so uh, and ended the day flat. So what it now has led to is lots of discussion about what will happen when the Reserve Bank of Australia next meets uh, in a couple of weeks. And now the expectation has gone from a 35% chance of another interest rate hike to over 60% chance of another interest rate hike. So uh, not the kind of lead up to Christmas that a lot of people really want to hear about. No, and the global slowdown has also led South Korean battery maker LG Energy Solution to warn of an EV decline, which is extraordinary. I thought that was uh, on the up. 
Yeah, really interesting. And I guess it kind of um, um, links back to, to what I was saying about the, the Norway uh, uh, fund as well. You know, they saw that 2.4% fall in renewable energy infrastructure investments. Well, uh, LG Energy Solutions um, warns that it's expecting revenue growth to really slow through next year. Uh, and on that warning, uh, its shares fell 7% today uh, uh, during trading in in South Korea, now it's um also warning that these interest rates are really affecting borrowers' capacity um to to, to borrow. Uh, you know, it's not just mortgages uh, for and home loans that are affected; it's all sorts of loans. Uh, and even though we're seeing this big uptake and desire um, from, I guess, a, an environmental and social point of view, to for people to buy electric vehicles as opposed to uh, combustion engine uh, vehicles. Um, I guess the buck stops where the buck stops. And mm. so um, yesterday, for example, General Motors are uh, saying that it was slowing the launch of its uh, EV models as well. Interestingly, though, um, LG AES did say that they will continue with their big ramp up uh, at their battery plant in Arizona, and that is to take advantage of those tax credits as part of the US government's Inflation Reduction Act. So uh, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, it seems. Yeah. And then finally, a very, very quick look at the tech wars. Yeah, so we, we, we're we in sort of quarterly reporting season. So we heard from Alphabet, which is the owner of Google and Microsoft as well, and and both um, reported uh, numbers that perhaps weren't as in line with expectations. Uh, revenue at Google's cloud unit, so it's sort of AI, um, slowed, uh, and that saw its share price in after-hours trade plummet almost 6%. Microsoft saw uh, better numbers and its share price rose in after-hour trade. So it'll be interesting to see what happens um when Wall Street opens and and how uh, investors take to that news now that they've had a bit of time to digest just what's happening with investment in AI. Rachel, thank you very much indeed. That's Rachel Papazzoni there talking to us from Perth. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Hunan Radio and Television released a new five-part series called When Marx Met Confucius earlier this month. It's been rolled out on the National Conference on Propaganda, Thought and Cultural Work. Well, I'm joined now down the line by Patricia Thornton, who's an Associate Professor in the Politics of China at the University of Oxford. Patricia, many thanks for coming on the show. Can you describe this film, When Marx Met Confucius? Yes, it's a startling new production uh, in that it's and it's differed from some of the earlier short video clips that we've seen uh, that have been released on Chinese social media. This particular one is a full-blown five-part series that was produced, as you said, by a provincial television station. And it was, of course, then rolled out at this national conference on propaganda where it was endorsed by Xi Jinping himself uh, as a way of rolling out a new edition to uh, or, new, or a new element, we should say, of Xi Jinping thought, this one being Xi Jinping thought on culture, rounding out what the English language division of the party propaganda department has called Xi-economics, which is Xi Jinping thought on economics. There was Xi-story, which we were exposed <laughs> to a few years ago, meaning his contributions to historical thought. 
And then, of course, his contemplations on Chinese foreign policy have been dubbed shiplomacy. <laughs> so I, I, we don't know if this is going to be called she culture or what, what it's going to be called yet. But at any rate, this new series, When Marx Met Confucius, is designed to introduce these ideas to a Chinese audience. So I've been watching some clips and it really is very, very bizarre. I mean, you've got these ancient mm. artefacts like dancing and doing a rap. You've got mm. um, the sort of disembodied head of Mao kind of floating. About. I mean, do you explain it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I can, actually. I have been watching it uh, almost ceaselessly since it's been <laughs> reproduced because it's like, Uh, a slow-moving train wreck. You know, it's this gift that just keeps on giving. And so, at any rate, I think the idea behind this is that you have these two actors, one playing Karl Marx and the other one um, playing Confucius, and they meet at a famous uh, academy of classical learning in China in order to try to discourse about their long-standing disagreements, uh, including, of course, the fact that Karl Marx advocates revolutionary social change, whereas Confucius is a great proponent of social stability. And they're doing all of this in front of an audience of school children. One of them, a schoolgirl in the first episode, observes that although Karl Marx is German, she'd like to give him some traditional Chinese clothing and ask what his reaction would be. And Karl Marx bows and he's very, very grateful and says he's been in China for over 100 years. And in fact, he's always been Chinese. (laughs) As you might imagine, this particular acknowledgement has been the object of a great deal of derision from a certain sectors of the Chinese internet. Uh, I've seen clips of this uh, particular scene being overdubbed by netizens with laugh tracks from, you know, sitcoms. Uh, So it's not been particularly well received uh, by all sectors of Chinese (laughs) society. Who is it actually aimed at, though? That's an excellent question, and we're not exactly sure. Uh, Presumably, because of the presence of these uh, school children, and they seem to be about middle school age, that may well be the intended audience. It's certainly not a series that's going to have much valence with uh, more uh, sophisticated adults. Uh, And in fact, uh, some of the evidence that we've seen on social media is that you've got these long chains of derisive comments that are being posted about this series. And of course, the censors are removing them about as quickly as they can. Um, but some of them are still sneaking through. Mm. Is it trying to strengthen a personality cult around Xi Jinping? Well, I I mean, there is certainly that element to it, because at the National uh, uh, Conference on Propaganda, they were rolling out yet this new invention of Xi culture or his his special thoughts on Chinese culture. And it joins that whole other palette of uh, Xi Jinping thought on just about everything. Um, but it's difficult to really say ultimately what what its contribution is supposed to be. Some social scientists have actually said that these kinds of products, which we're seeing increasingly produced within China, are attempts to actually intimidate or silence public debate within China by cluttering what they call public space. And even one uh, social scientist that I've seen has said that 
by making the large numbers of people apparently mouth absurdities, and this truly belongs in the realm of absurdity uh, here, that it, it actually is a signal that sort of intimidates um, potential opponents or contenders within China, because if the party state is so strong as to force its uh, line, which is really nonsensical mm -hmm. on people, that it, that they could certainly do whatever they wish to anyone who would seek to challenge. Patricia, yeah. thank you very much indeed. That's Patricia Thornton. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Emma Searle and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher, Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. The briefing is live at midday in London and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>